Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us man's need of God's righteousness for salvation. Today we'll study how we obtain this righteousness. All right, uh, would you turn with me please to the book of Romans chapter 3. Book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I'm reading from verse uh, number 21 and following. Well, let's just read from verse 20. Um, Verse number 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, they shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works, nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So the first central point about salvation is that it's about righteousness being made available to man. The next question is this. But how do we get this righteousness? And what Paul points out here is that the righteousness God makes available to man is solely and entirely on the basis of our faith. You notice the two expressions he says in this passage? Even the righteousness of God, which is what? By what? Faith in Jesus Christ. You notice the last part of it? Unto them that what? Believe, for there's no difference. So this righteousness available to us, how do we get it? This is one of the most vital questions in all of sacred history, by the way. It was the great question that was the turning point in the Reformation of the 16th century. Remember that there are three founding major planks on which the Reformation is based. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola Christos. Christ alone. Sola Fidi. Faith alone. Those are the three major planks of the Reformation. The entire Reformation rested on those three things. And by the way, if you look at what Paul writes in verse number 22, the wording in the King James, it's not the order 
in which it is in the Greek language. How does the King James put it? Notice verse 21. Uh, now the rights of God without the law is manifested. Uh, the way Paul puts it there in verse 21 is this way. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. And what Paul is trying to draw the clear distinction here is that it is not law righteousness. So he wants us to understand that very clearly. It is not something that you can work for. It's not something you can do. The people depend upon their morality. Well, pastor, I'm not a bad person. I'm far better than most people in the church. I don't dispute that with you, sir. If you have such a high elevated opinion of yourself, hold to it. But I will tell you this. If you think you're better than everybody in the church and that's going to get you to heaven, hold on to it. But can I say something to you? The simplest person in this church who holds on to Christ and Christ alone, get in there, not you. By faith. It comes only by faith. And faith in what Christ has done for us. May I ask you a question here this morning? What are the three barriers that confront man in respect to his condition before God? What are the things that are between uh, man and God today? What are those barriers that have to be removed? Let me mention three things to you very quickly. First of all, there is sin. Secondly, there's the law. And thirdly, there's divine wrath. Those are the three barriers between you and God. Now what Paul is teaching here is that God gives to us a righteousness that deals with all those three problems. How did he deal with sin? He dealt with sin By dying for us because the penalty of sin is what? His death. How did he deal with the law? Why are we no longer under the law as a means of salvation? He dealt with the law by keeping the law for us. Listen, we are saved by his life and by his death and by his resurrection. If he did not keep the law in his life, the law would still be looming between us and him. But he fulfilled the law on our behalf. So he dealt with sin through his death. He dealt with the law through his life. But then there's another thing that stands in our way. It's called wrath. He took his wrath upon himself. And when he was resurrected, the Bible says, he was raised for what? Our justification. He took the penalty for us in its completeness. So in his life and in his death. But the big question this morning is how do we get this righteousness? Most of you are familiar with uh, Martin Luther. I'm not talking about the black civil rights leader. I'm talking about the 16th century man that brought about the Reformation called Martin Luther. You know what his big problem was? Martin Luther's greatest problem was this. He knew... From his own experience. That he was a great, great sinner. He knew that he was under divine wrath. But the thing that bothered Martin Luther all of his life was. How do I get from under this wrath? You remember what he did? Well. 
He became a Catholic. And he became a monk. Yeah, he went into a monastery. And he hoped that by rigid discipline. I don't know if you know this, but these monks get up early in the morning. They say prayers. They have to work. Then they get their breakfast. They have another prayer vigil. Then they have to work the land. It's a matter of discipline. They have study, work, and prayer. Study Their entire life is study, work, and prayer. And he believed that he could win the favor of God and get righteousness by becoming a monk. So he became a monk for many, many years. But he still labored under the weight. Do you remember Pilgrim's Progress? Christian got this weight on his back and he, he doesn't know how to get rid of it. The weight of his guilt, the weight of his sin. So guess what he did? He became a theologian. He started teaching people scripture and entered seminary teaching other people, yet he's not saved himself. He tells you the story. Hoping that somehow by his investigation into scripture, he will find a solution and an answer. And by helping people to follow God, he'll enter into heaven. It didn't happen. You remember what else he did? He tried prayer. Vigils, night vigils of prayer. Do you remember what else he happened? He tried flagellation. Taking a strap. And at night beating himself until he's unconscious laying down in a pool of blood. The man wants God. He wants to know how to take this weight off his shoulder. He's, he's prepared to do anything. And that didn't work. And you know the next thing that he did? Martin Luther waited until there was a storm. Massive storm with thunder and lightning. And he goes out into the storm and stands up and said, God! Do something! Kill me! Hit me! Do something! Do something, God! Do something! He's serious. He wants to know how can I be righteous before God? But that didn't work either, friend. But you know what did work? With this haunting question in his conscience, and everywhere he looks, he cannot find peace. He happens to have taken up the epistle of Romans. And he read in the book of Romans, the just shall live by faith. And a light came on in his mind. But he said, Pastor, didn't he read that before? He taught it. He taught it in a theological seminary. But like you and me, there are times when we come to scripture that we read again and again and again. And then suddenly somebody comes. Wait a minute. That was always there. It hasn't changed. What has happened? You have changed. The spirit of God has now taken and given you an angle that you never saw before. You know what you call that? Illumination. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into your life and now makes what you'd never understood before so plain that you're wondering, how come I never see it? That's the work of the Spirit, sir. So what he discovered was not something new, but something right under his nose that he himself was teaching, but never understood that if he wanted to be righteous before God, it was not about beating yourself into to become unconscious. 
It's not about nights of vigil and prayer. It's not about becoming a monk. It's not about standing in the weather in the storm and asking God to blast you. What is necessary is to put your faith, not in faith, but in Christ. I'm going to deal with that for just a moment. Because I think people got their faith in faith. I'm going to say something that might seem rather strange. Your faith doesn't save you. I'll clarify that. Hold that statement right there in your mind. I'll explain what I mean by that. I think a lot of people got faith in their faith. Seriously. So that brings me to the question. Notice that Paul says here, even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ. And then unto all that what? Believe. For there's no difference. So this comes to the million dollar question. What is saving faith? What is saving faith? You know, Paul says not everybody has faith. Are you aware of that? I hear people say, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. Everybody got faith. Everybody got faith. And then they use the illustration. Well, you wouldn't sit down in the chair unless it will hold you up. So you got faith in the chair. And you wouldn't put your money in the bank if you didn't have faith in the people in the bank. Sometimes you misplace your faith. But not everybody has saving faith. If everybody has saving faith, everybody would be saved. So what is saving faith? Now I want to say this morning that saving faith has three elements. And if any of those elements are missing, it is not saving faith. Let me tell you what those are. First of all, all saving faith has the element that you acknowledge the truth. You must acknowledge the truth. You cannot be saved if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God. How do you get saved? You remember in the Luke chapter 16? The rich man that went to hell, do you remember what he said? Father Abraham, if you send Lazarus back from the grave and they go to my brothers, surely they will believe. And what did, he, what did he say? If they don't believe who? Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe. A miracle will not make you believe. Oh, I wish Jesus would come back and perform so many miracles. But look how many miracles he performed in life. And when he was finished, he only had 12. Only had 12. So if you think miraculous signs are going to bring about a transformation in society, you are doomed for a mistake. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe though he rises from the dead. Let me put it this way. If you cannot believe that God gave you his word, how are you going to believe another man said he rises from the dead? If you can't believe God, how are you going to believe man? I'm saying to you that saving faith must have the element of acknowledgement of the truth. Number two, it must not only have the acknowledgement, it must have the assent to the truth. And what I mean by that, you must agree with the truth. If you don't agree, if you don't believe the truth that God has provided a righteousness in Christ Jesus, you don't acknowledge that as truth. Number two, you don't accept that as truth. 
How are you going to get saved? You tell me how you're going to get saved. The point I'm making here is there are people who have an intellectual awareness of the truth. There are people who have an intellectual acceptance of the truth, but that's still not saving faith. Don't take my word for it. Go on any of these doors here in Antigua and knock at the door and uh, ask the people, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and died for your sins? I will be shocked if most Antiguans don't tell you yes. You'll meet a few that will make fun of you. But the vast majority of Antiguans tell, of course I believe that. I mean, who, who don't believe that? But are they saved? No, they're aware of the truth. They have an intellectual acceptance of the truth, but they're not saved. So what's the third element? The third element of saving faith is the appropriation of the truth. And what I mean by that now is not just saying I'm aware of the truth. I accept that it's true, but I take that and I embrace that and I claim that and I trust that. That is what saving faith is. So when we're talking to people and we are given an evangelistic message and we talk about trusting Christ and having faith, don't stop there. They think you mean I acknowledge Christ and I believe Christ came. But it doesn't end there. Are they now willing to put their entire trust and appropriate that truth and make it theirs? If not, sir, you're not saved. Saving faith must have all these three elements. And the Apostle Paul here very, very clearly says it's by faith in Jesus Christ unto them that believe. Now let me show you in a very practical way how you know when you have saving faith. A man who has saving faith no longer looks to himself or look at himself to be just before God. He looks to Christ. Did you read what you get what I'm saying? A man who has true saving faith no longer looks to himself or himself as the basis to be right before God. He looks to Christ, not himself. Here's the danger. You can come to the point in life where you begin to believe that you're not too bad. And you're pretty much better than everybody in the church and so on and so forth. You don't do a lot of wrong things. So when you comes to where you're standing before God, you look to yourself and you compare yourself with other people. And you're trusting in a real sense. You're looking at your goodness. You don't do this. A man that has saving faith looks beyond himself. Doesn't look. He looks to Christ. So in a very practical sense, his trust is not in his goodness. His trust is not in his works. His trust is not in his righteousness. His trust is in Christ and Christ alone. Sola fide. Faith. And faith alone. Sola Christos. Christ and Christ alone. So my question to you this morning is very simple. Where does your faith rest? 
You remember that we sing a song? My faith has found a what? A resting place. Not in device, nor creed. See? But in Christ. So where you rest your faith? If it is not Christ and Christ alone, sir, may I ask you to re-examine your status and standing before God. Because this is the type of faith that's required. Not only an intellectual acceptance of the truth, not only an awareness of the truth, but an appropriation of the truth. We sing another song. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blood, to thee whose blood can cleanse his spot. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. In other words, I'm looking to you and to you alone for my salvation, for my righteousness, because I have none. And what little I may have, that's a filthy rise in God's sight. So I can't depend upon that. I'm reminded this morning of that great pulpiteer, that master preacher, unequal in his lifetime, in his lifetime, unequal now, and I believe forever unequal. That great man they call Charles Spurgeon. If you haven't read his sermons, you're missing a feast. You're really missing a feast. Charles Spurgeon. You remember how that great man became a Christian? I don't know if you remember the story. But here's a young man in his early 20s. And he wants to know how to be saved. So he goes to this church to find out. But he doesn't get it. He goes to another church. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Nothing appeals to him. And at his tender age, weighed down by the sense of guilt and sin. By the way, could I give you a little secret? The most wicked period in a child's life is not when he's 18 or 19. Could I tell you something? It's when he's between like 10, 12, and 14. If you know what they do during that period of time, you'll be shocked. That's the period of experimentation. That's the time to play mommy and daddy. That is the most wicked. And sometimes it's with brothers and sisters. But it's so embarrassing they can't tell anybody about it. It's an extremely wicked time. You've got to guard your child during that period of time. So here is Spurgeon. And then one night there's a, a storm, a snowstorm. And Spurgeon wants to find God. And Spurgeon has decided that in spite of the, the snowstorm, he's going to go to church to find God. And you remember what happened in the story? He happens to just enter the church. And the pastor wasn't there to preach. So who's going to preach? And a, a deacon in the church who cannot even preach and could not even preach. He got up. And pretty much said, you know, I'm not the pastor, I'm not the preacher, but I've I got to do something tonight. So he got up and he read from Isaiah. I think it's 45. And all he did in that sermon was, these are the words. Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. He was like, you ever saw a record that was scratched? 
And it remains the same thing all the time. All he kept saying, look unto me, all the ends of the earth be saved. Look unto me, all the ends of the He just kept repeating and repeating. But what he didn't know is that the young lad Spurgeon stood there and presto, God said, that's it. Look to me. That's how Spurgeon got saved. No fanfare. No great sermon. Not even a preacher. Just a deacon who says again, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And Spurgeon just looked to Christ. And in that moment of faith, he understood that only looking to Christ and Christ alone. And that was the moment he got saved. Faith. Faith. Do you have faith? Do you have saving faith? Now I talked about the deception that I need to make you aware of. And here's the deception. There are people who are depending on their faith as the basis of their salvation. Yeah. That's a mistake. Look what Paul says clearly here in the passage. Even what? The righteousness of God, which is by what? By faith. What saves you is not your faith. It's the righteousness of Christ. Your faith is the instrument that takes hold of it. But it's not your faith. It's his righteousness. In other words, what you must depend upon is not your faith, but in his righteousness. But I know people who depend on their faith. Now let me show you. If you do that, you can say to God in that in heaven, you know, I, I, I had faith he didn't have any, therefore I deserve. Faith now becomes a work. It's something you do. But the only reason you are getting to heaven, I'm getting, because of the righteousness. I trust his righteousness, not my faith. Look. Let me ask a question. If it is your faith, how much faith must you have? What if you got more faith than me? What if I got a little tiny bit of faith? And you got a whole big mustard tree of faith. Am I saved more than you now? Does it depend on how much faith you've got? What I'm saying to you, sir, if you do not realize that your entire standing before God is dependent on Christ's righteousness. That's what you depend on. Let me ask you, if that is true, what about you don't have faith? What if you don't have faith now? That your faith has begun to wane. See? What happens then? You see, your faith may dilly-dally depending on circumstances what happened to you. But listen, the right of Christ never changes. That's what makes you a standing before God. And when God looks at that, that's what he's concerned about. See? His righteousness. I want to ask you this morning, do you have saving faith? What are you depending on to save you? When Martin Luther came on the scene, And he fought against the Catholic Church. You know why he fought that great battle? Because the Catholics were depending on two things. The fact that they belonged to what is called the church, which is the only true church, the Catholic Church, the universal church. 
And the second thing they were depending on is the mass. There was a third thing, of course, indulgences. That's what the Catholics were depending on. That they were in the true church, the mass would wash away their sins, and the, the, the priests could grant them indulgences so that they could sin for a week, and God would take care of that because they paid for it. And Martin Luther said, that can't be true. That's wrong. And he wrote 95 theses. In 1590, and nailed them to the church at Wettingburg. And that started about the, rebel, uh, the, the, the complete reformation. Faith and faith alone. And the last thing I want to say this morning from this passage, notice. Who can get this righteousness? Look at what he says. For even the rights of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, what? Unto all, and what? Upon all. To whom is it available? Don't be embarrassed. All! I do not believe in something called limited atonement. I do not believe that Christ died only for the elect. The Bible makes it clear that Christ died for the world. He tasted death for every man. He is not only our propitiation, John says. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says that God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. No, is he mocking you? Is he mocking me? Now, I am mentioning this this morning because I had a struggle with that at one point in my life in this ministry. I have told you the story before, but there are people who are here who might not know the story, so I'll just quickly mention it. I had a friend of mine who was an independent Baptist and he became a Reformed Baptist. Uh, I had him over in St. Lucia. He would come and he would do pastoral seminars for us. And he sent me a book. It's called Journey in Grace. I'll never forget that book. Never would I ever forget that book. I read that book. And by the time I was finished reading that book, that man has so convinced me that God had only died for the elect that I found myself when I got into this pulpit and I came to the word like whosoever and all, I started now to reinterpret that. And I couldn't say it with boldness and courage because it was so convincing. And I got alone and I said, God, something got to be wrong here. Something got to be wrong. This book is either right or this book is right. I got a choice to make. I can either say whosoever. I can even say all. That or I can't say that anymore. So I found my toe, my tongue was tied. And I had to make a choice. And thank God I made a choice for this book. I took the other book and I put it somewhere. I can't even find it now. Honestly, I don't even know where it is. I must have put it behind the other books. See? Let me tell you this. The salvation that God offers in Christ, the righteous God offers in Christ, is available to all that believe. All! See? Christ stays in death for every single man. See? Let me ask you a question. What's the use of telling me whosoever will... What's the use of telling me that uh, the Lord is long, not willing that any should perish when he knows he's willing that some should perish? That makes sense? What about you telling me the house is burning over here and I tell you you can get out of it. I'm mocking you said, come, but I know you can't come. 
It boils down for me with the justice of God and the morality of God. And I believe with all my heart that God in his sovereignty have chosen to deal with man on the basis of free will. That's how I solve the problem. A sovereign God has decided to deal with me on the basis of free will and choice. And if my will is coerced, it is not free will. So I'm saying that to say this. When you meet anybody, that in, no matter where they are, let them know that salvation is available to them. All. All. Don't be hesitant to say whosoever will. Let God's word guide your thinking. Rather than a theology or a philosophy that comes into a straight jacket. That every way you interpret the Bible, that straight jacket determines what you believe. This is the book. So the times when I will preach on election... When I'll preach on God's sovereignty because God's sovereignty election is there. There are times when I'll preach on whosoever will and, who, and, and, and God is not willing because it is there too. I preach both. I can't answer the problem where the two of them meet. I can't answer that question. But I know one thing that both are there. And one must not be elevated above the other. There must be this balance. Thank God that having told us righteousness is available, he didn't say, well, you know what? Unto all the elect. No, no. Unto all that have faith and believe. See? You should be saying hallelujah all in. Now, you guys don't get excited about nothing. Nothing at all get you guys excited. I don't understand that. Honestly, you should be saying, you, look, every sinner here should be calling down the, the whole ceiling saying, praise God, I'm, I, it's available for me. But you stand there hearing truth. Nothing excites us. Nothing. So the Apostle Paul has said three things. Number one, that God has a rescue plan. And that rescue plan is that God has created a means of man becoming righteous. He provides the righteousness. He does that. He says that this righteousness that God offers is completely distinct from any kind of law righteousness. Nothing you can do. And then Paul says it's available through faith. Saving faith. Now remember what saving faith is? The intellectual awareness of the truth. The intellectual assent to the truth, agree to the truth, but it's also an appropriate way. I take that truth and I trust that truth. And then Paul says, this righteousness that comes by faith, I've got something else to tell you. It's available to all. All. My dear friend, I want to say to you, Whoever you are this morning, whatever your state may be, there is a message of hope in the gospel for you. That God's rescue plan fits your size. I repeat, it fits your size. I don't care if you're drunk this morning, it fits your size. I don't care if you're fornicator this morning, it fits your size. I don't care if you are a skeptic this morning. It fits your size. It's available to all. Now, I want to say one last thing in closing. 
This is what I believe. I believe that when Christ died on the cross and he said the words, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I believe that his death put God in the place now where he can draw all men to himself because Christ's death covers all sin. I really believe that. That's what his death has done. Put God in the position where salvation may be offered to all because his death applies to all. He died for all. See? And that gives God now the right, as it were, to draw all men to himself. I close by reminding you of this. There are three things that God will use to draw you. Three things. Number one, God will use his word. Faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. If a man says he doesn't have faith to believe, I would recommend to that man he attends the church, goes to a church and sit under the ministry of the word. As the word is preached, the Holy Spirit takes that word and the Holy Spirit creates faith using the word. Faith is the, the, uh, the word is the faith created way. If you don't have much faith, get into the Bible. Make it your daily debt. Read it. Study it. Look at the miracles. As you begin to grasp the truth of God, you will find that faith begins to develop and grow because it is the word of God that feeds faith and grows faith. So number one is the word of God. Number two is the spirit of God. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will go out what? He will what? Guide you into all truth. And he will do what with the world? He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see the, you see the word? Sin and righteousness and judgment? The three things I told you about against us? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I call it wrath. See? And the Holy Spirit's job is to take the word and to convict you. See? Nothing else can convict you but the Holy Spirit using the word. If you came to Christ any other than other means and the Holy Spirit convicted you through the word, you entered the wrong door. I tell people this. I got saved when I was about 16 or 17. I don't even remember the exact. But I can tell you exactly. I can tell you what the guy was preaching. I can tell you who was preaching. I can tell you exactly what happened. It was real. Lord took that word and convicted me so much. Not a word that I didn't know. I'd known for many, many years. But that's the conviction. And the third thing that God would use to draw you. Not only his word and his spirit. But could I say this? His saints and his people. Notice. And the spirit. And who said come? And the bride, say, who's the bride? The church, see. That's why when we go witnessing and we go out sharing the word, the human instrument is part of that matrix. Who will give people the word? The saint. When the saint gives people the word, the Holy Spirit now takes the word. So if one of these are missing, you have a deficit. How are they going to hear unless someone tells them? So you are part of the instrumentality of bringing people to faith. Because you carry the word, allowing the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. So if I don't carry the word and they don't hear the word, they can't get convicted. So their blood is on my shoulder. See? I want to ask you in closing. What do you want this morning? And what do you need? 
What you came in here for? Well, pastor, I thought you're going to tell me something great. I thought you're going to call down fire from heaven. I thought you're going to spit out words that are life-giving words and I will see sparkles and lightning and thunder. Sir, I can give you lightning and thunder, put your hand in the plug. Oops. I can give that to you. As a matter of fact, you didn't even have to come in to get that. Go home and just grab it. The greatest thrill in your life. No, I hope you came in here for one reason only. What does God have to say to me from his word this morning? What's his message to me this morning? What cobwebs he wants to clear to my mind? What I've been believing all my life, that's not true. Now you see with clarity what this doctrine of salvation is all about. Now what are you going to do about it? That's the acid test. What are you going to do about it? Sir, I've got one message to you. It's the same message Mary gave to those people at the marriage feast of Canaan and Delhi. You know what it was? Whatsoever he saith to you, do it. Do it. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us that grace and Christ's redemptive work on the cross are also needed to obtain this righteousness of salvation. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.